Welcome back to Ether Hour, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dimitri Kaligan, and we are here with our third supporter Q&A. If you want to get behind the paywall and ask these questions, click the link down below. Visit worldwarnow.co and support us to get access to every episode of Ether Hour and ask us questions every month like we try to do with these Q&A threads. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and hop on into some of your questions. So thank you so much for sending these in. So great questions this week. Always some interesting topics that we have to brush up on and explore to get answering the things that y'all are curious about. So we're going to start off here with a question from Caleb Woodward, who says, Hi, Conrad and Dimitri. I was wondering if you could share your thoughts on the current problems with the DPR authorities. I find it quite deceiving. The entire Donetsk deep state is highly corrupt. I came across an interesting Russian author discussing possible geopolitical conflicts behind the scenes. I'd like to hear your take on this matter. So this is something we've, of course, talked about this in a few of our episodes about some of the Donbass heroes, you know, like Zaharchenko, Givi, Motorola. We've, of course, talked about our favorite fellow Stremousov and, you know, some of the potential, you know, shady things around his death because he was just getting way too based for, you know, people on either side. So, of course, we recognize that there are deep states all around, we have an entire Ether Hour episode called, you know, Going Into the Russian Deep State. So we've talked about a few of these things. Go back and check the backlog. But Dimitri, what what are your thoughts on the Donetsk Deep State specifically? I don't know if that extends to Luhansk or anywhere else, but I'm curious what you're thinking. No, I think the question is is a really good one. Well, I watched the video that Caleb actually posted re- regarding this particular event. I just want to mention the author... I don't believe the author himself or, you know, at least the lady in the video would consider herself Russian. I think the actual YouTube channel, the News of Donbass, is probably run by uh, Ukraine or at least like a Ukrainian news agency, Ukrainian journalist. So just want to kind of throw that out there that I generally agree with the author on, on a few of the points. There are several oligarchs and even oligarch clans existing in not just Donetsk but also its sister city Lugansk and these of course with their roots they don't go back to 2014 or even uh, even after that or they're not really necessarily related to the SMO of the Russian you know operation in that region but they're actually dated far beyond that pre-2014 into into what was known as like I guess the lawless the, the lawless years of Ukraine so after 1990 one into all the way up until 2014 and naturally things escalate so you have essentially businessmen who you know similar to Igor Andreev and the most famous one of course Renat Akhmatov uh, Akhmatov is perhaps the number one oligarch in all of Donetsk and Lugansk combined his name always comes up in Tsushilin the leader of the Donetsk People's Republic constantly mentions him as his number one opponent because Renat Akhmatov owns several industries at once he is essentially a billionaire of a capital B um, his assets are not entirely listed, and he's he, at least in the early in early like Ukrainian history in the 2014 conflict. The big question was who would he side with because we had figures like Kolomoisky, who was his essentially opponent. Akhmatov and Kolomoisky were considered the two richest men in all of Ukraine, except Akhmatov. Interestingly enough, he was of Crimean Tatar descent, and he was a Muslim by faith. Kolomoisky, as we know, is of a Hasidic Jewish descent and he's, you know, he's of the more rabbinical disposition. So he had this, a Muslim and a Jew, the richest people in Ukraine, but Akhmatov was more Donetsk, Lugansk based. So the question was, he lived in these regions, who would he side with in 2014? And unequivocally, he began supporting the early Donetsk authorities. So Ukraine kind of, you know, 
condemned him. And it's still to this day, he controls certain companies, at least in even Ukrainian-controlled Donetsk cities like Kramatorsk, Kurahova, etc., uh, which is interesting because, you know, other big oligarchs in Donetsk, such as Igor Andreev and Dmitry Yergunov, also control many, many different factories and industries around this region. And what's, you know, what's the difference between a successful businessman in Donetsk, Lugansk, and maybe an oligarch? Well, I think it's, I mean, there's many definitions, even Aristotelian perhaps, but to myself, an oligarch would be someone who doesn't just use isn't just involved in business or uh, entrepreneurship, but also uses his business success to kind of impact politics, even in a very corrupt type fashion, right? So this is where the dark, unethical side of business entrepreneurship comes into the matter. Uh, how would you use your money? Would you use it to lobby and buy off politicians, which is the accusation given by this article in Dmitry Pushudin as the leader of DNR. He seems to really paint this picture that Donetsk has a real mafia oligarch problem. And he even speaks about really interesting, like socialist type things where he says, well, we're going to institute antitrust legislation in Denaire very soon after the SMO is done. We're going to nationalize a lot of these big companies like there's massive milk companies, coal companies, uh, steel plants, steel industries. So I think the general gist of this is that Donetsk and Lugansk are definitely going to they are currently not really undergoing any reforms internally. These oligarchs still control. And mind you, like we'll call them oligarchs, but they could be businessmen. I haven't really investigated their particular, you know, we don't have, the, even Dmitry Pushinin doesn't have the authority or even the resources to investigate which companies they own, how corrupt they are. There's no one has audited these particular industries. It's simply these oligarchs have ended up on our side of the front, if you get what I mean, our side of the front line. So it's essentially up to us and those pro-Russian side in courses to actually look into this matter, check them for corruption, see if they've been influencing local politicians and kind of get into the details here. But what's interesting is I think that Dmitry Pushilin and his people who side with him, and these may be the people who also supported Zaharchenko back in the day and figures like Givi, maybe even more Strelkov-minded people, very conservative Donetsk-minded people in the government. Perhaps they, they do see that these oligarchs in the future maybe will, one, either nationalize the various industries themselves, so they will become more, uh, I guess, patriotically driven. Perhaps they'll be a lot more pro-Russian because notice Kolomoisky is a, a very eccentrically, like politically minded. He supported Zelensky in 2018 and 19. Essentially, he won Zelensky the election against Poroshenko before COVID began. But meanwhile, Akhmetov was very off the grid. Yes, he did publicly support the Russian SMO, given that he is a billionaire and whatnot, but he never openly, you know, donated money, never started like Prigozhin, never started a mercenary company of his own, never supported the Russian troops with equipment or anything of that sort. I'm not even sure if Akhmetov supported the local people of Donetsk and Lugansk with equipment such as, you know, Kevlar's, drones, things like that. So the question arises, how much did these oligarchs and businessmen actually support the independent republic since 2014? I think that will be one of the, you know, one of the big measuring tools that we can use in order to ascertain whether or not these people were actually pro-Russian, pro-Orthodox, you know, in support of the movement against the New World Order in this particular Ukrainian context. But interesting question, and yes, of course, there's a lot of money to be made in Donetsk and Lugansk. These are very rich regions, lots of various industries, blue collar mostly. So we have to consider that, of course, businessmen, various CEOs, entrepreneurs will take advantage of these opportunities here in the regions. Now, it's not just about the military. So 
Oh, there's a lot of money to be made and when there's money there's greed there's corruption and of course in like mid-war years 2014 and onwards a lot of people probably took advantage of the fact that there were no auditing campaigns no real checks and balances in place even legally and business business wise so of course probably a lot of corruption has set in but let's not forget the fact that ukraine itself was the most corrupt country i'm quite i'm paraphrasing bill gates here even before the 2014 Maidan, 2013 Maidan crisis. So uh, yes, there's a lot of issues on the ground, but they can only be resolved after the SMO and after the entire Donetsk People's Republic has been freed from Ukrainian occupation. That's a pretty good answer, of course. Denis Pushilin himself has been scrutinized somewhat by patriot types, people like even that used to be, you know, friendlier with him, like Gubarov and others have obviously Strelkov has not so nice things to say about him. Apparently he was involved in some Ponzi scheme at one point that was considered one of the largest pyramid schemes in the world. I don't know all the details or the truths behind all of that. But of course, at the end of the day, when a area is, you know, unrecognized by any country in the world for, you know, six, seven, eight plus years, you know, certain characters are going to ultimately find their way into these places. And I don't think that that's the case everywhere. But for example, I mean, look, Strelkov is somebody who no matter what was going on, law and order breaks down, he was going to enforce, you know, the moral law on the ground at the time. And, you know, he's now in jail. So if you want to draw the parallel to the people that might not be in jail, you know, that's for you to do. But unfortunately, you know, maybe they need more people like him out there these days. But unless you have anything else to say maybe about any of the other oblasts or any of those other local governments, Dimitri, we could probably move on to Renee's question. Yes, of course. Sorry, I just uh, wanted to correct myself. It was, of course, Genius Pushilin, not Dimitri Pushilin. I was uh, misreading a quote here. But naturally, yes, uh, what Conrad said, absolutely correct. And yeah, while the war is ongoing at the moment, investigations, of course, can only be done kind of on paper, which is why this live journal article that you did link, I think is 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 a good is good because it kind of looks into the background of some of these people and you know the placements right so you have these uh, politicians in the denier parliament involved like who whether their kids work which industries are they in is there nepotism involved i think all of these investigations are ultimately are fruitful and will be fruitful into the future because they all assist uh, certain investigative bodies within the republics themselves and you know they'll sort of reveal what's happening under the cover throughout the war years but just going on to renee's question now what is the deal with rocor a do you have any idea why brazilian rocor didn't follow the rest of latin american rocor and chose to follow metropolitan agafangel so rocor a the russian orthodox church outside of russia a a stands for agafangel which is the leading metropole uh, so-called a metropolitan bishop of the uh schismatic Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia jurisdiction. So this, of course, the schism occurred during 2007-2008 link. Uh, it occurred officially in 2007, but was solidified in 2008. The link between the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia and their Moscow Patriarchate, which took place, you know, gloriously in Moscow itself. And of course, the majority of the bishops, not not just the majority, but the absolute vast majority of bishops supported this action from Marikor, except one and this one bishop that opposed it openly, a lot of minor clergy, well, not a lot, but there was a few tens of minor clergy around the world in countries like Canada, Australia, South American countries like Brazil, Argentina, who actually also opposed the union. But again, uh, as minor clergy, they're you know designated to actually obey their hierarchs. But Metropolitan Agafangil gave them 
a solid, well, I guess a solid reason to actually go into schism according to their reasoning. So Metropolitan Agathangel, uh, his his background, just very briefly, like who is this, uh, you know, not heresiarch, but leader of a schism here. He was the Bishop of Edessa and Crimea into between 2003 and 2007 when he went into schism. So for several years, he was actually the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia representative in Ukraine. Which is funny enough because, right, it's like Ukraine is at the at the center again of everything. And Ukraine, of course, allowed for a lot of sects, lots of different schisms, lots of various uh, small churches to break out in the first place, which maybe even explains Metropolitan Agafangel's you know, insistence on going into schism. His accusations of the Rokora Council initially in 2007 were that, you know, the Russian Orthodox Church in Moscow was ecumenist and it was not conservative it was essentially still it didn't repent of surgeonism just the typical accusations you see thrown about by people of a more schismatic mindset members of you know old calendarist communities and those sort of uh, record minded schismatics who broke away from the church in 2007 2008 but what makes this even more bizarre is metropolitan agathangel um, I call him Metropolitan, you know, simply because he—that's what he calls himself. But naturally, the, the, he was the Bishop of Edessa, and his personal views, from what we understand, are actually, you know, considering he he accuses Russia of being very anti, you know, anti-conservative, ecumenist, surgeonist, things like that, and essentially promotes schism amongst Russian-speaking folks in America as well as in Russia itself, and tries to actually spread his schismatic church. He is quite liberal in his views, so he's openly, you know, spoken out in support of like various Ukrainian liberal politicians very randomly. He he himself claims to be a monarchist, but has made very depressive statements. Like in in June, July of 2022, he gave sermons when this is in the middle of the SMO. He says something like, "Orthodox statehood in this world will never be restored." That's the exact quote. The Lord withdrew his authority from the earth. All civil authority has been withdrawn. There will never be an orthodox state. And the Lord has taken away his anointed one from governing the state. And it's like, okay, well, he said this in 2022. This is amidst the SMO. Great events are taking place. And he gives us the really depressing sermon where he essentially states monarchy will never ever exist again on, on earth, which is very weird. His sidekick, and this is the reason I call him sidekick, is because Again, if in amidst all of these schismatics working in the world, accusing Rorikor and Patriarch Kirill of not being conservative enough, you have these weird... Thank you for listening to this free segment of the a for r the full subscriber-only episode. Make sure to check out our World War Now substack in the video description. In the complete third Q&A episode, we discuss esoteric Russian book translations, future projects, right-wing politics, questions of cosmology, astrology, nationalism, and the ideals of democracy in an Orthodox Christian worldview. We thank you for your support and look forward to hearing from you.